Amen. Well, do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're doing a series right now where we are looking at different passages in the Bible that help us to think about the future of our church together. A couple weeks ago, we did a, a sermon on the values of our church. Last week, we looked at the servant leaders of our church. And today, we'll do kind of a big picture of what does it mean and what, what does it even look like to be a gospel-centered church. And so we're going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's a letter, uh, letter written to a church in Thessalonica. Uh, as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of background. Uh, you, can, you can read about this in Acts chapter 17. Paul and his ministry team were traveling around. They were missionary church planters. They landed in a town called Thessalonica. And for three consecutive weekends, Paul was able to preach the gospel there. He would go into their synagogues and he would teach the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. He would explain and reason from the scriptures. I'll show that to you here in a little bit. Um, but for three weekends, he did that. And people believed in Christ and they put their faith and their trust in him. And then they gathered this church together. But it was such a hostile environment. There was so much opposition to the gospel that Paul and Silas and Timothy had to peace out for their own safety and for the safety of the church. They had to quickly leave from there, but they were on the heart and the mind of Paul and his friends, and so they wanted to check in. They actually sent a delegate back and said, okay, report on what you find there. And that person comes back and gives a report, and then Paul feels compelled to write this letter. It's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of instruction, but he's trying to help this young fragile, fledgling church that's persecuted have confidence in the gospel. So I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll pray and get to work. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for your spirit. We pray, God, that we would hear your voice this morning. We pray, God, as a church family, that you would help us to to gain our confidence in what you have done for us and who you are making us to be. So we commit this time and we ask that you would be glorified with it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Three things I want you to see here. We've got thankfulness on display in verses 1 to 4. Paul is being thankful for what God is doing in that church. We see the effectiveness of gospel ministry in the midsection there, verses 5 and 6. And finally, we, we see the church being who they are called to be, gospel witnesses in verses 7 to 10. So the whole thing that's going on here is Paul is writing and he's trying to help the church have gospel confidence. Here's what God has done. Here's how that was accomplished. And here's what that means for you. So let's get to work. Here's what we find then is that a church that is founded and established in the gospel is praiseworthy. A church that is founded and established in the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen is praiseworthy. And he's going to outline some of the reasons for that praise and they might not be what we would expect. Because often we evaluate the life of the church based off of just kind of normal conventions of how big is the group and what does it look like and what does it feel like when you go there? Is it a welcoming, you know, kind of uh, community there? How is the preaching? How is the music? What's the children's ministry like? And we evaluate church life on those sorts of criteria. But here we see that Paul is thankful for this gospel-centered church for some very incredible reasons. And those are true of you as well. So he's writing to this young fledgling church and we need to hear this for Park City Church as well. So we think about our future and who are we and what are we becoming and what does our future hold and you know, do we have any stability? Do we have a plan? Do we have a future together? And God is saying, look, here, here are some reasons for which I am thankful for you. First off in verse one, he's thankful for who they are. He's thankful for their identity. Verse one reads like this. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that ministry team, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. He says, to the gathering, to the assembly. It's actually a word that in that first century, it was a non-technical term. It was just a word for a crowd. To the, to the assembly in Thessalonica, here's, here's what's true of you. It's a non-technical term, but it be, it, it, as we see it, we see it come across here in English as church, and we understand, well, that word is no longer a non-technical word. That is a very specific word. That is the word talking about God's people. But in the first century, it could just talk about uh, any crowd, crowd gathered for political reasons or for entertainment purposes or whatever. There were different kinds of assemblies. And so Paul here is saying to this group that has gathered Here's what makes you significant. This group of people from Thessalonica, your geography, your location, your culture, that's not the most important thing about you. Here is the most important thing about you. You belong to God, to the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying there's something about this gathering, this assembly that is significant. It is their relationship with God. They have this vital relationship with the living God. They belong to him. They are in him and in the son, Jesus Christ. That's you. That's me. As we gather together this morning and every time we do gather together, we're no ordinary assembly. We're a people who are formed for God and by God. We're a people who are in him. Our vibrant relationship is with God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ, and that is what makes us significant. 
Not the amount of people that gather or what we do when we're gathered together, but the fact that God has drawn us together in Christ. That's what the church is. So Paul is expressing thankfulness for that fundamental identity. They then are this new society, this new community. Yes, they live in Thessalonica. That's their zip code. That's their region. That's the makeup of the community that comes together. But there's something even more significant about this gathering. They are this new community. They're the people of God who reside there. And so we need to remind ourselves of our identity, whether we're meeting in Rockton, Illinois at Williams Tree Farm or meeting somewhere in McChesney Park or wherever it is that God would open a door to us in our future. We, we want to be able to say, hey, we are this gathering and we can say the address on Sunday morning, 4661 Yale Bridge Road, or we can say wherever it is that we land, we can talk about our geography. But the most important and the most significant thing that we always need to be mindful of is this reality of God drawing us together. We are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the church. We are the people of God that he has brought together. Therefore, may blessings be on you. He declares that benediction or that blessing there at the end of verse 1, grace and peace to you. Because of who you are, may the goodness of God rain down on you. May you experience God's peace and his provision. May you experience grace and peace. I'm thankful for who you are. I'm thankful too for this relationship that we share. As Paul is writing, he's reminding them of the fact that he has a relationship with these individuals, even though it was very brief, very abbreviated, and he had to run out of town for his own safety. There's a thankfulness for that relationship. So look at verse two. He says, we always, this ministry team and I, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. There's a relationship that we share. And so whenever I think about you, you're on my mind and I pray to God for you. I'm thankful for you. I'm bringing all of you before the throne of God's grace. I'm praying for you. I'm grateful for the relationship that I have. As brief as it was in person, I'm grateful that we have this connectedness with one another. And it shows up in my prayer life. Now I feel the uh, weight of that. I, I understand that a part of my job description is to pray for you guys. In fact, in my home office, I've got a little verse that's um, framed, and I've got it hanging up in my office, and it's from Jeremiah chapter 10. And in Jeremiah, it's talking about shepherds, and it's talking about them metaphorically as spiritual leaders. And it says this in Jeremiah chapter 10, it says, the shepherds are senseless, or another version says, the shepherds are stupid. Now, if Harrison's in here, I'm waiting for the correction. He's always like, Dad, we don't say stupid. Um, I don't hear it. Maybe, maybe he's busy. But the shepherds are senseless. And they do not, here's why, they do not inquire of the Lord. They, they don't talk to God about the flock. So it goes on to say, so they do not prosper and all the flock is scattered. I've got that hanging up in my office because here's part of what my responsibility is. I need to designate time in my work week for praying over you. And if I'm not doing that, if I'm not praying for you specifically, then Jeremiah 10 reminds me that's, that's pretty senseless. That's pretty stupid. Because if I'm not praying for you, then one of the things that might happen is 
that, that I, I would not prosper in my work and the flock will be scattered. Prayer is a significant thing. So Paul is saying, I'm grateful for this relationship that I have and here's what I'm doing. I'm praying for you continually. I'm thinking of all of, all of you and, and I'm thankful for you and that shows up in the way that I'm praying for you because there's this relationship between the leader, Paul, and his ministry team and the people that they're seeking to serve. He goes on to explain it in chapter two. He says, look, at the end of the day, when I stand before the Lord, here's what my reward will be. Here's what I will be rewarded with. So this is now chapter two, verses 19 and 20. And he's trying to talk about this ministry that he's engaged with, with this people. And he puts it like this. What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? What is the outcome of the ministry? Last week, um, Reese and Harrison finished their, their final week of uh, spring soccer, and Harrison was so pumped about getting a medal. Um, he, got, he didn't get a medal, though. He got a trophy, but he was so pumped, and he's just kind of like beside himself. And he was thinking about that day for weeks, um, like, I can't wait for it. And then he actually made a deal with my wife. If they don't give me a, a medal, can you get me one? <laughs> <clears throat> but he got a trophy, and he's very thrilled about it. And here Paul is saying, look, what is my reward? What's my trophy for doing ministry? What's the medal for which I'm going to receive? What's the, what's the medal that God is going to commend me with? He says, is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. The reward for gospel ministry is people. At the end of my life, I'm not going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and, you know, stand before him and go, hey, what do you, what do you think? What do you think of this ministry? And he goes, hey, you know what? You're preaching. You, you, I know you worked really hard on that. Here's your preaching medal. You're welcome. Or, dude, uh, here's your reward for your faithfulness in ministry. You did such a great job of organizing church and creating great experiences when we gathered. Here's your medal for doing a good job on that. No, here's what the Bible says. The reward for faithful gospel ministry is you. You're my glory and my joy. You are my reward. The outcome of the people of God under the shepherding ministry of the pastoral ministry of the church, the, the reward is the people. And so there's a thankfulness between Paul and the Thessalonians because he's saying, look, I have this relationship with you and I care about you. And as I think about you guys and I think about what God is up to and I'm praying for you, um, I, I want you to know that this is, this is how I think about ministry. It's about you. It's not about me just kind of creating a ministry in my name or in my glory. It's about you. And if I do my job well at the end, end of the day, the proof of it will be you. It'll be how you're living and how you're engaging in the world and, and how you're honoring God with your lives. And so you are the point of this whole thing. There's a thankfulness for the relationship. There's a thankfulness for the work of God in the people of God. Look at verse three. He says, <clears throat> we remember before our God and Father your work produced by love, uh, your work, excuse me, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying we remember that, that you were a changed people that God did such a significant thing in you that you had this kind of triad of 
gospel realities going on, faith, hope, and love. You, you became changed individuals, and it began to show in the way that you related to the world, that your, your entire orientation to life changed on account of the gospel. John Stott puts it like this, together, these three things of faith, hope, and love, they completely reorient our lives as we find ourselves being drawn up toward God in faith, out toward others in love, and on toward the return of Christ in hope. Stott is noting that there's this kind of reverse of the gravitational pull, that when you become a Christian, your, your life dramatically changes. Before being a, a Christian, the, the gravitational pull is in. What does the world do for me? What can these people do for me? How, how can I make this world work for me? Everything is just kind of, you're at the center of the universe, everything's meant to revolve around you, but when you become a Christian, it flips the switch and the gravitational pull, then it becomes outwardly oriented. That you're no longer sitting around just daydreaming about your own life, but you, because of the power of God in you, you begin to kind of move out toward the world. You have this faith, hope, and love. You, you begin to become very productive. You're working, and that work is produced by your faith. You're laboring, but that labor is prompted by your love for God and others. You're enduring, and that endurance is coming from the hope that you have in your Lord Jesus Christ. You have changed, and that's what Paul is celebrating here. The gospel reality of a, a gospel community is that it's a group of changed people. And he can outline that and say, I celebrate the work of God in you and through you. And that is significant and that is enough. So he's thankful for God's work in and through them. He's thankful too for God's love for them. Look at verse four. For we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you. We know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you. Now I know the language of choosing an election can trip people up, but here's what I want you to see here in this verse. It is on account of God's love, that it is the love of God that results in people experiencing relationship with him. He loves them. And so Paul is able to say, I'm thankful for that relationship that you have with God that is founded and established on his love for you. God loves you. Now, here's what's happening then. Paul is trying to put some gospel confidence in this people. He's trying to instill them with gospel confidence. I know that you're a young church. I know that you're experiencing persecution. I know that you have a discontinuity between leaders because we were there for three weeks and then, then we're gone and you had to hustle to try to figure things out. But here's what I want you to have. I want you to have confidence in what God is doing in and through you. I want you to be founded on that reality. So Park City Church, as we think about this new season in the life of our church together, I want you to know that our future is not based off of my leadership abilities or my ability to preach or our ability to gather or the planning that we execute. The, the future of our church is built on the reality of what God is doing, and that is enough. May we have gospel confidence in him. The second main thing I want you to see here is the effectiveness of gospel ministry. And this shows up in verses five and six. Basically what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, the way that we did ministry, where we oriented our ministry around the truth of the gospel, that worked. 
It actually did something. It was powerful, and we saw that in you. Let's look at it briefly. The church is the result of this gospel ministry. So the preaching ministry wasn't just some dude getting up and talking. It was a display of the power of God. Look at verse 5. We have confidence because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. He's saying, look, I had a calling, I had a responsibility, I had a message that I was entrusted with, and I needed to share that with you. And that involved me communicating some of the natural and normal conventions of communication. I got up, I talked, I reasoned with you, I spoke to you, I declared this message to you. But what's most amazing about that is it wasn't just this ordinary kind of TED Talk thing. God showed up. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. <clears throat> we'll put it up on the screen. We're just looking at the way that he was preaching here, but he said, with the help of God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Paul was a gospel preacher. So what did he do? He spoke. He told them something. He had a message. That message was the news of the gospel. And even in the midst of strong opposition, he proclaimed that gospel to this community. In Acts chapter 17, where the, where the church, where the outline of the church starting comes from, here's how it's put. It says, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. That's, that's preaching. That helps me think through what is it that I'm supposed to do. <clears throat> well, it's ordinary communication. He gets up. It's not disconnected from thinking. He's reasoning with them. He's opening the word to them. He's explaining it to them. He's showing them the connections, that this is actually about Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm explaining to you from the scriptures the realities of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. This is God's plan. He's doing that. He's trying to persuade them, but he's communicating, and all of that is a part of what I feel called to do. I feel called to preach. But here's what I hope for and pray for that I don't just get up here and talk, and that this ministry isn't dependent upon my abilities to do that well. Yeah, I have, I have work to do. I have to organize the material. I have to try to present it in a clear way. I have to try to show you the, the reasonableness of the scriptures and what they're pointing to. But at the end of the day, here's what makes gospel ministry effective. It is the power of God. Our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. The message of Jesus, Jesus crucified and risen is the power of God. And in Romans chapter 1, it talks about it, that that message to some, it might sound like foolishness, that God would send his son and that son would die for undeserving people and would rise from the, the grave. That might sound like foolishness to some. But then it goes on to say, but to those who are being saved, this is the power of God. The good news of the gospel is the thing that actually changes people. I don't have to be the, the best communicator in the world for that to be true here. You know, I don't have to come up with TED Talks that make you walk away like reconsidering your life and thinking, I need to change everything about who I am. No, I just lay out the gospel before you week by week, and I say, okay, here's where the power is. If I can make this plain, if I can make this clear, if you can hear it and the gospel, you know, the Holy Spirit lights that thing up, it can change a whole lot of hearts and lives real quick. 
And that's what we're seeking to do. When that happens, though, <clears throat> excuse me, not only is the message dynamic, but the result is as well. That people don't just hear preaching, they are changed. That they actually begin to pursue discipleship. Look at verses 5 and 6. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. There's this discipleship that's going on. So a person who hears the gospel and the, it's the power of God on display and it comes with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, they gravitate toward discipleship. They want to, to grow in their Christ-likeness. They become imitators of other believers and of the Lord. They, they move toward, okay, what does Christ really want for me and what does it look like in real time? Listen, preaching is very limited in what it can accomplish. I know I just spent a moment on trying to describe the power of preaching, and I believe that, and I believe that's my calling, that God has given me a, a gift of preaching. I'm not a normal, natural, public, you know, speaker, but God called me to this task, and I believe it's, it's a powerful reality, but it is limited. It can't do everything. You can't just show up on Sunday morning, listen to a talk, and expect for you to become a mature follower of Christ. If you're sincere in your belief in God and your desire to follow him completely, you need to be in environments where discipleship can happen. You need to be doing life with other believers. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. There's a reality that some of Christianity can't be taught. It has to be caught. It has to be modeled and observed and then lived out. What does it look like to be a faithful follower of God in real time? What does it look like to go to work tomorrow and to honor God? Well, I can preach about that, and that might be a little helpful, but what if you actually saw it lived out in front of you? What if you were imitating somebody who was seeking to do that? What if you were doing life, life-on-life -life discipleship with other people, and you're just living this thing out, and we're all growing then together? That's what happened in Thessalonica. That's our aim for this church that you would grow in your imitation of others and specifically of the Lord. And when that's happening, there's proof of it. Your life will begin to reveal the beauty of the gospel. Look at how it shows up in verse 6. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. When you're hearing the gospel and it's coming home with power to your heart, and then when you're doing discipleship with other believers and you're growing in Christ-likeness, it will show up in the way that you deal with the world. You will suffer, but you will do it with joy. In, in another passage of scripture, it says that you're, you're sorrowful, but you're always rejoicing. You're going through a broken world with all of its disappointments, and you're honest about that. You can feel that. You're not kind of pretending that that's not real. You're, you're totally connected, you're totally self-aware, but you are joyful. You're going through severe suffering, but you're doing that with joy given by the Holy Spirit. That is a different kind of person. That's an attractive kind of person, a person who's navigating the brokenness of the world that we live in with joy given by the Holy Spirit. That'll raise some attention. That'll draw some... Uh, some intrigue from other people, but that's what we're being called to do. We're being called to see the effectiveness of the gospel. The preaching ministry on display with power, discipleship ministry as we're imitating Christ together, 
and a result of that being the ability to, to suffer, but to do it joyfully with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So finally, that moves us to this third reality that we find here, and that is that the people of God become witnesses. They become the missionary people of God. They have a job to do. They, they actually get to represent God to the watching world. The news of the gospel is spreading not only through the preaching ministry of those individuals, but now it's spreading through the, the fame of the gospel's effect on its recipients. Look with me at the text here. It says in verse 7, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So the power of the gospel on display in your life actually became this example for other people. They began to take note of you and the effect of the gospel on your life, and, and you become this model to other people. And in fact, this reality is so profound that it begins to kind of sound forth. Verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. When, when the people of God actually start to live out the priorities of God, when the power of the Holy Spirit is on display in the life of God's people, that's all the advertising a church needs. Because the people of God then become these walking advertisements for Christ. The message is ringing out. It's the, the imagery of this gong being struck and the reverberations of that noise just carrying well, last night there were some fireworks going off and my kids were like, what was that? And it was miles away, but it, it showed up at my house. That's how the gospel can take effect in our world, that you can be living your life and the fame of the gospel is spreading, that it is resounding and everyone is taking note of it. John Stott calls it holy gossip, that you're living in a way that other people can't stop talking about. You're living in a way where people are saying, man, these guys are different. These people, there's something about them that is beautiful, it's attractive, it's godly, and it's just simply unique. It's them living under the rulership of Christ by his spirit. The people of God become this new reality in the world, and it is noteworthy. That's the kind of church that I want to lead. That's why we push on living missionally. We're, we keep encouraging you. God has a calling on you, and it is to do your life for him. Everywhere you go, every hobby you engage in, every relationship that you build, that you build you're doing it in God's name. You are the missionary people of God. And may the beauty of the gospel be so evident in your lives that people take note of it, and it just sounds forth that it just spreads, that it rings out from you to all places around here. Well, they are different for a couple different reasons. They're different because their worship is different. One of the reasons why people are taking note of this new community is because their, their worship priorities have radically changed. Verse 9 describes it for us. It says, they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us they tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's worship language. Idolatry, I know, is a weird concept for us in 2021, but idolatry is worship. 
and is saying, look, the news that's going out from you is that you changed your worship. You had other things that you were committed to previously, idols, stuff that you were drawing significance from and purpose from and meaning from, stuff that you were spending your money on, stuff that you were daydreaming about, stuff that you cared deeply about, and you went from that to something entirely different. You went from idolatry to serving the one true and living God. Your worship changed. May that be true of us as well. May our worship change. So when somebody looks at our, our lives and they go, okay, what are these guys all about? I hope that they don't just say that, oh, it's the same as anyone else. They worship the same kind of stuff. They have these priorities in life that are identical to anybody. You know, we could survey people from our church and people from the community, and it's all the same. They care about the same stuff. Their safety, their comfort, their families, their political opinions. They just, that's the stuff that they worship. That's the stuff they daydream about. Their, their promotions at work, their income, their stability, those sorts of things. It's all the same. Church people, people in the community, it's all the same. No, no, no. May the message be this. They went from serving the cultural idols that were so normal and common, and they traded that in, and they became worshipers of the one true and living God. And that should be something that, according to this text, is noticeable. Not that you have to dig in to really you know, figure that out, double-click on it to try to understand, do these, are these people actually different? Well, it's going to take a lot of work to figure that out. No, no, no. This, in their culture, was obvious. Are we obviously different? Are we noticeably different? Are we turning to God from idols in order to serve the living and the true God? And finally, one of the evidences of their changed way of life is that they are now patiently waiting. Verse 10, and they're waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Is that something that feels like you can own it? Because this is one of the things that Christians need to embrace. What, what is our posture toward the world? What should we be known for? Well, one of the things that Christians should be known for is this waiting for the return of Christ. Waiting for him to show up again and make all things right. That's actually a hope that we have as believers in him. That we don't have this responsibility on us to just fix everything. Yes, we should be engaged in significant ways with faith, hope, and love. You know, working and loving and serving and doing all these things with tremendous effort. But we are also a people who wait with expectation that the Lord is going to return and he's going to make all things right. And so this church is waiting for the sun from heaven. He's waiting for the return of the Lord, and they are working in the meantime. This is a major theme in the teaching of Christ. What does he say over and over again? He gives parables. He says, look, the master departs, but will come back. The master is leaving and gives an assignment for a season, and the people who are doing their assignment well will be richly rewarded, but, but he's going to come like a thief in the night. So church, are you ready for that? And even better question, are you hopeful for that? Are you expecting that with eager expectation? That's what the church needs to do. We need to be so radically changed that our worship has changed and our waiting has changed, and therefore people are noticing these people are different. 
John Stott, again, he puts it like this. He says, the church needs to be radically, ordinarily different. Doing ordinary stuff in a radically different kind of way. And he puts it like this. No church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it has been visibly changed by the gospel that it preaches. This morning as I've, we've gathered together and I've opened the word to you, I'm trying to show you what a gospel community really looks like. It is a people who are gathered together in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, a people who God is working in and through, so we're producing faith, hope, and love, that the gospel message has shown up with power. We are a changed people, and there's evidence for that, and people are taking note, and they're being drawn then to our Savior. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Lord, I ask right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would be doing that change work in us. That the gospel wouldn't just be words spoken, that this event wouldn't just be a dude standing up here preaching, but that this would be a moment of you by your spirit with your power doing some incredible work in our hearts and lives. I pray, God, that you would help us to become a gospel community where these things that were said of this church could be true of our church. People who are different. And that difference, Lord, may it draw people to your son, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.